Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Hey, there's a new library out that aims to enhance the pipe operator in Elixir. Um, you're probably familiar with the pipe operator, but uh, the value of the previous function is always passed into the next function as the first position parameter. Uh, that's standard Elixir. So if you're ever curious uh, or want to uh, p- put that value into a different position on the next function, um, then the library Magritte, uh, which was just released, might be a good solution for you. So you can check that out and you can find the, the link in the show notes. Jose Valim's new company Dashbit extracted and open sourced a new Nimble hex package. This makes the sixth Nimble package, Nimble being the naming convention they were using. And this one is called Nimble TOTP. So I don't know if there's like a smooth, easy, elegant way to pronounce that, but uh, I'm just going to call it Nimble TOTP. But this stands for Time-Based One-Time Password. So this library came out of the Bytepack project, and it is for managing one-time passwords, you know, generating QR codes, the little graphic that is shown can be scanned by a, a phone. So I think it's awesome because it is something that I can more easily add that feature and pull it in and reuse that and something that we can build on in the Elixir community. Super props to them for open sourcing that and contributing to the community in that way. Nice. That's a pretty cool library. I was uh, An authentication system is always one of those things you have to yak shave in new applications. And uh, yeah, adding one-time passwords is something that's like always an afterthought for, for me, but I, I always, I know that I need it, uh, especially if you're, you know, you're going to be handling like sensitive information. Um, so that's, yeah, nice that there's a good solution out there. Also in the news is that Ecto is gaining a new type. This type is called Ecto.enum. This one is, in- is interesting. This one allows you to load values from the database and be cast as atoms. In my mind, I think this would be great for um, a great type for fields like tracking a state or a status of a model, for example. So like if you have if you have a widget that transitions states and you're storing that in the database, so like processing and completed and emailed, if you put those statuses into the database, they're always cast back out into the application as strings, but you might you might appreciate that being atoms. Um, those are known things. Those are accepted things in, in your application. The ecto.enum is an application side uh, way of safely casting those known values out of the database into your application's atoms. The more interesting part here, the more important part, I think, really is the work that is powering this, that's that's underneath this, um, which is called parameterized type. And this allows the field values uh, to be customized via passed-in options. And the first implementation of this is as ecto.enum. It's a little difficult to explain this, like, without really seeing it and, like, doing it, but I'll try my best. <laughs> right now, uh, ecto-type conversions mostly consist of dumping and loading values between the database and your application. And currently, they don't allow you to pass in options to dumping and loading. And so with this new type, parameterized type, the options that you passed in when defining the field will now be passed into, into the dumping and loading function. So now you can, you can conditionally operate on those values from the database. For example, having a, a known list of values that you want to cast into atoms. And so that's pretty cool. I think that opens it, uh, opens it up to a lot of uh, interesting implementations in the future. So props to the team uh, there that 
that implemented that. And I'm really looking forward to see how that, how that evolves. Yeah, this is one of particular interest to me, just because at our work, we had actually created an enum style library to help with some of these things. And what we were looking for was like, we wanted to be atomized, but safely, and we wanted to be able to help with validations and we, and, you know, be able to even use in pattern matching. And there's been a number of different enum related ecto kind of uh, additions in the community over time, because it's something that a lot of people would like to see. So I'm really excited to see how this pans out. And we'd love to talk about this in more detail in the future. Something interesting about this, I wonder, you mentioned pattern matching. One of the nice things about current implementations is that, you know, using macros, before you define your schema, you would you would say like define an enum and it has these values and then it would kind of build you a module that has those attributes in there for you. So you could say like, if this thing is my type dot status dot active, right? And you'd get an actual active module to pattern match on. Um, it sounds like this is going to be easier as far as like you can just pass values in as options. So that's nice, but you might not get pattern matching that you have with current implementations today, but maybe it's just easier to use an atom anyways. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. Well, I, I also think of some of the other recent news we've talked about, which was improvements to Elixir LS around Ecto. So it'll be very interesting to see if some of those, that information that's available now in these parameterized types in Ecto Enum, if that can come through in the tooling too. That'd be awesome. It may, it may not be a compiler warning per se, you know, coming through the tooling would be awesome. Oh yeah, that would be really cool. There's a definite play between compile time and runtime there. Yeah, the, the options you pass in to the field when you're defining it, that's that's happening at compile time. And those options are just available to you in runtime when you're casting and loading. So there's, yeah, got to know the difference there in case that uh, affects what you're wanting to do with it. But yeah, really cool. I'm excited about it. That's big work. Yeah, so check the show notes for the details on those. And that's it for the news. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Maciej. He's calling in from Poland. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we're, I'm excited about this topic because he wrote an interesting blog post about decomposing models based on lifecycle. And I just love the idea of having different ways of approaching how I can break down a problem and how I can model something in my mind or you know even whiteboard it. And so I thought it'd be fun to just kind of bring him in and help us kind of talk through this and kind of get a better idea of it. So, Maciej, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. I'm excited to talk about those topics. I hope it's going to be fun and interesting. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, where you work, and what kinds of problems you're solving? Sure. So, I'm Maciej. I live in Poland, in Poznań. And I work for a company called AppUnite. We are a software development agency here in Poznań. And we work with clients to help them build great products, basically. We focus on maintaining long-term relationships with our clients. So for the past two years, I have been working for a client in the logistics industry. And we are building a system that basically tries to solve some of the problems that have been present in that industry for a long time. As far as uh, the challenges go, we are mostly dealing with a pretty complex domain. So all the things we're going to talk about today, so modularization, domain-driven design, 
are pretty important for us to to be able to deal with that domain pretty efficiently and safely. So I guess that is uh, a different challenge when you're dealing with different clients and they're coming and saying, hey, we need help building this product or service. And you're having to kind of come into a new uh, domain with its own set of language. Uh, so that's something where you probably, you know, you've worked out some systems for how to say, okay, this is a whole new thing. How do we start breaking this down into something that we can attack? So you mentioned domain-driven design. Is that one of the approaches you guys use? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the good part about working in such a company is that we we can really easily share experiences. And it turns out that even if we, you work in completely different domains, some of the problems are similar. So you can compare, compare approaches, you can compare solutions, and you can figure out a way to deal with them pretty easily when you compare experiences with your team members and coworkers. And yes, domain-driven design is really important for us because as I've said, our goal as a company is to help clients build great products. We are not only focused on the technical aspects, but we all want to ensure that the product is as great as it can be. And we want to make sure that the business is running efficiently. So domain-driven design is essential for us to be able to focus on what's really important, to be sure that we solve important problems and we solve them in a nice, efficient way. Between clients, do you ever get, uh, do you ever get tempted to copy, you know, some, not code necessarily, but like y you have this domain called a user or something along those lines, right? Even though between clients, their concept of a user is different. Do you ever feel tempted to, you know, kind of copy that other domains concept of a, of a user into this new domain, you know, a uh, user? It's interesting topic uh, because I have written a blog post some time ago about uh, users specifically, uh, a user model. And I really think that it's not a good idea to copy that. Uh, what we often mean when we talk about a user model is different things that are used for different uh, activities or different purposes. So when you think about uh, a user, it means, for example, it means authentication. It means some kind of accounting, maybe. Uh, it's some profile that is displayed on the interface. It's maybe some kind of relationships with other users on the system. For me, it makes little sense to model all of this as a single model, as a single user model. So because of that, it also makes no sense for me to copy that code from different uh, business domain because it's just not used in the same way. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I was kind of going with that is, you know, the, there's this new generator out there for Phoenix that um, I tried using the Phoenix Gen Auth. And, you know, at first when I tried to use it, I was like, oh man, this is, this is going to be trying to force some sort of like domain onto my, my, my application. But that wasn't true at all, really, you know, and I, I got to adjust it and it became my, my application's code. And I applied my domain to it and it, it eventually it evolved. But as a consultancy, I always have this, 
have to strike this balance to think about like, okay, well, if somebody's going to always have to log into my system, um, and, and I'd like to get to the meat of the app, you know, to meet of the application to, to solve the real problems there for, for the, the client. And so every time that you have a new client with a new application, you're going to have to yak shave as, as we call it. And, uh, user, the user model is typically one of those things. How do you find yourself striking a balance there of, you know, making that kind of stuff quick, yet very specific, you know, custom code, custom application, custom to your, you know, to your client? How, how do you make that uh, quicker yet, you know, as you say, uh, part of the domain? Actually, one of the things I love about the Elixir ecosystem is that tools you use rarely force something on you. So you mentioned the, the generator for the authentication. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great example of a tool that generates some some things for you, but allows you to adjust it to your needs. In, it doesn't forces uh, it doesn't force anything on you. It doesn't force any particular structure. It just gives you something to to start with. So I think it's a nice approach for starting uh, a system. But another way is to just the first weeks or days when you start working on something, uh, you can just ignore ignore those stuff. I mean, with done systems when you don't have login for for the first few iterations just to be able to make a proof of concept pretty quickly and then show it to the user to the client and gather feedback so what we like to do is to focus on uh, parts that are unique for our system and just introduce the the common parts later in the process. This is actually pretty helpful when you are trying to get a modular system because when you start without a user, without a, a login part, you have to think about implementing those useful things in isolation. And then if you want to introduce login later, it's naturally more modular than if you would start with the user first. Well, I would love to jump into our main topic, really, which is around your blog post, uh, where you talked about focusing on the events and thinking about those to help us break down a problem. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that's connected to domain-driven design. But one of the things I just want to mention is, you know, when some people hear the term events, they may be thinking like in a Rails or object-oriented way, you might be thinking like callbacks or things that fire like an after-create kind of a thing. But that's not what we're talking about. I think we're talking more about like event buses and message passing, uh, which can be inside your system, like through PubSub or outside of your system through like Kinesis or, you know, different, you know, RabbitMQ, different ways of handling and, and sending messages. So I'd love to hear like kind of what you're talking about when you when you say that we can decompose something into life cycle talking about the events. Okay, so you mentioned few few things there and I think it is useful to go back a bit and talk for a minute about modular design and what is it about. And for me modular design is all about embracing change. 
It's about recognizing that change is going to happen. And it's about structuring your system in a way that makes changes easier. And then domain-driven design for me is about making sure that the boundaries you set around those modules match the natural natural boundaries that are already there in the in the business you are supporting or that the boundaries match the behavior of people so then if you you have these boundaries that match uh, changes you have to make in the system becomes become much easier because then hopefully if you get that right each change that you have to make is within a certain boundary it's scope to a single module and it's just easier to to make that change and you mentioned the composing and i think the composition of existing models is one of the things we have to learn as developers if we want to achieve modular design it's pretty common to think that modular design is something you you start with that you will get the modularization and boundaries right and i think it's not really realistic to think that uh what we have in real life is that we have deadlines right and we often have to make something pretty fast and that something is not what we would call a good modular design. So we end up with those big modules. We end up with a lot of coupling that we have to deal with in some way. So this is why I think the composing such big modules is a valuable skill. And the question is how to do that. And I'm worried that it's not a simple thing to do. Maybe not worried. It's just not a simple thing to do. And there is no good solution there. You just have to know few different techniques, heuristics, and basically try different things at and see what works for you. And in the blog post, I talk about one such technique. It's about looking at your domain looking how things evolve and trying to take this life cycle of uh, an object of a model and try to separate that model into different modules different contexts uh, i am using uh, an, an example from from my industry industry so from logistics uh, when i'm talking about a shipment and the shipment can go through different stages in its life cycle. It first have to be somehow inserted into the system. Then it can be waiting for a driver, for example. And then once driver is selected for the shipment, it behaves differently. So by separating those different life cycles into different contexts and different modules, we can match how the shipment behaves in, behaves in real life and it helps us to make changes easier and more efficiently i hope that idea of decomposing being a skill that really kind of resonated with me it's like yes you know there isn't a 
these are the steps. This is how you do it. Because every situation is completely unique. It's going to be different, you know, just because of the interaction with this concept with another concept. In in this project, it's going to be different, like you were mentioning with users, right? The way that, that users may have relationships to other users or they may not. So I like the idea of heuristics, kind of like a rule of thumb. So one of the things that we'd mentioned was this idea with events was like PubSub. It reminds me of like a microservices approach. And I'm wondering if that's kind of how you're designing these systems and you're decomposing or breaking it down into really small services where it's microservices. Yeah, maybe you can give some explanation to that. I think it's important to first think about what you're trying to achieve. Because when we talk about microservices or events or pops up or message queues, we often think about many things at once. Pops up can mean that we want to do something asynchronously, but pops up can also mean that we want to, in a way, invert the, the flow of the application. So instead of calling some function directly, we want to decouple that call from the, the business logic we are writing, for example. For me, the question whether to do microservices or not is a valid question, but it's important to think about what problem you're solving. For us, it's not a solution to any of our problem. I mean, we don't need to go to microservice architecture. Microservices are great when you have a great team that you want to allow to work uh, independently. They are great for isolating failures. They are great for cases when you need to be able to deploy something separately, but it's just not the case for, for my team. So we are just using a, a single monolithic application, a single Phoenix application. We just keep it uh, separated on a, on a domain level, on a code level. It, it all runs inside a single VM, of course, replicated, but it's just a single monolithic application. I'm glad to hear you say that because um, I think when people hear, uh, when they talk about events, they start to think, oh, I need an external message bus. I need, uh, you know, it, it just starts layering levels of complexity. And then they start thinking, oh, well, I know other people use microservices. And so I'm just glad to hear that you recognize like, you know, that that is a great solution for some problems, but it's not actually a solution for our problems. And I just like hearing that you're able, you're saying, yeah, we see a lot of value in using PubSub in a just a single Phoenix application just with code organization. So the one thing I'd love to hear more about is I love the term you used where you said you're using events and PubSub as a way to invert the flow of an application. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain that a little bit more. Yeah, so the thing about events is that they are often associated with something that is handled asynchronously, but it doesn't have to be a case. And I would even say that if you are just starting with events and you want to dip your toe and try if it works for you, is to handle that synchronously. The thing you can do is just uh, have a module that that is called PubSub. It has a function called Publish. And then you have a bunch of modules 
each with a handle function. And even by using configuration, you can uh, connect those events to handlers and all of the event handling is done synchronously. And we've certainly done that in the beginning. We've heard other teams using that and it's a perfectly fine way of introducing events to your application. Then you can move to processing that asynchronously if you need to, but this brings another set of problems for you to solve. For example, how to ensure that each event is actually executed and handled, how to ensure that uh, the ordering of events is maintained. Even with such a synchronous process, you can you can achieve a lot. And the perfect case for that is dealing with all the side effects. For example, when something happens in your system, you want to send a notification, you want to send an email, you want to run some background job. Such cases are perfect to handle with events. And it makes your code pretty simple to read and write because then your domain code is only concerned with the domain action you're, you're doing. Uh, for example, in our case, when we have a shipment that is created in the system, uh, our domain code can just take care of validating all the parameters and making sure that the shipment is saved in the database. And then when we have an event called shipment created, for example, we can have multiple handlers that each handle that event and does its thing. It can notify the drivers. It can send some invoice to the shipper. It can do multiple things. And then when you look at testing, for example, you don't have to test all those things at once. You can test notifications separately. You can test invoices separately. And you can test all the validations separately. And if you can test those separately, it also means that you can think about that code in isolation, which makes it pretty easy to understand. It makes it safer to change. It makes it easier to change. So you don't have to analyze the whole system, all the side effects to understand the, the point of a function. That's pretty cool. I, I, I just realized this, uh, this little superpower myself, you know, dri going to this more event driven or activity driven, you know, architecture. And I needed to branch my logic to do two things instead of the one thing, right? So instead of a single track railroad of processing data, it needed to branch into two railroad tracks. And since I had architected it into an, an event-based, you know, kind of architecture, not full on like CRDTs or something like that, but just, you know, just PubSub, basic PubSub, I found that it was really easy to, yeah, tack on another thing I needed to do to react to this event. Um, so that was pretty cool. But one thing that worried me about that, uh, maybe this is just a, a worry for me, not, not for other folks that do this more often than me, is that it's, it becomes a little bit harder to see how data travels through the system um, without even more work to build some sort of observability into the system. What if, what have you found yourself doing 
for uh, for for that to see you know the the complete web of effects that an event has as i've mentioned before we are using a single monolith so it's certainly easier and it probably gets way trickier if you use different code bases and different services but the thing is that in my experience uh that problem is not so so big because you don't often need to see exactly what is happening like on a global scale like what work looks like in like day-to-day work is that you need to for example debug some issue you need to work on a single part of of a system you need to add some behavior you don't need to analyze the the global flow of of the application it's just not something you do every day but if you do uh, and again monolithic code base really helps here that you can easily use grep to find all the events handler for an, an event and then you can easily find how the data flow through the system if you need to summing up i don't think it's much of an issue but if you have that need to know the full flow of the data you can pretty easily do that using some basic tools yeah i i agree yeah maybe it's not so much of a of an issue and i think i would rather have the trade-offs of uh activity-based you know architecture versus um having to you know, uh, do, do all the service level, you know, logic right there in line and that kind of thing and not, not publish events like that. So I think that architecture does end up being a net win anyway. I think that most of the time the question is, I got this piece of data, something happened and I need to think about why it happens. For example, when you're debugging something, it rarely matters how you get this data. So, when you're debugging something, when you're changing something, you don't need to know where this data came from, so who published it. You just need to know what form the data you received and what happened then. And in that scenario, I think that handling events is pretty easy to work with. That's really cool. And I, I loved the example you gave as a, a, a great place to start, which was like just a module that you could call PubSub. That's not actually using Phoenix PubSub or anything. It's just, just a module. And it has a publish. And then you can just kind of hook in the different uh, handle. So it becomes a little bit more like a broadcast. Like I want lots of different things to be able to hook in and say they want to they handle an event, but it's not, it's all synchronous still. So it's easy to mentally you have a place to look and see where things go. And even if it's hooked up through config, I guess, you know, you can still reasonably approach that. So I would love to shift and talk a little bit about any tips or heuristics or tools that you use to help identify what the events are that make sense to model in the system. Sure. So the first thing I would look for is any field on your model that is called state or status. Uh, because it often indicates that your model has multiple life cycles in it. And then the moment of changing the state is often connected to some kind of domain event. So this is one place that you can look for. 
another one is to analyze how people use the system you are working on and trying to find places when uh, your model changes the the actor it's interacting with. So, for example, I, I use the example of creating a shipment, right? And once the shipment is created, the system shifts from inter- interacting with the shipper to interacting with the drivers. So any communication that would be done between people if the system wasn't there is a subject for analyzing in terms of looking for events, I would say. Like There's this saying that all problems are people problems. And I think it's it's mainly because communication is hard. And by looking at that communication between people, you can really get a lot of insight on how to design your system. You can look or try to imagine how would people communicate if your software wasn't there. And then in that communication, you have a lot of potential events that are interesting for your system. So one thing that I have noticed in my code base personally, when I'm working in something that's small enough to fit into a single code base, I'll often put these event handlers like you were talking about into like a repo transaction so that if after the shipment's created if the next second or third step fails the whole thing rolls back and we can kind of keep our data clean right so what would happen in this situation where something later failed but two or three processes had already happened okay so great question because it's tackles one of the important things to think about when you're doing that. I think it's it's crucial to think about what the user is expecting. Uh, if the action the user is, is doing is complete, they should not get any any error or any problems, which may happen if you use transaction to handle side effects. For example, in our system, we have a lot of documents that have to be uploaded. And once they do, there is plenty of side effects happening. But we don't want the user to see any kind of error when the side effect fails. So we cannot just place a transaction around the handlers. This is one of the scenarios that we have to handle events asynchronously. We have to make sure that once the document is uploaded, the user sees a successful response and can move on because after that point, they are not no longer interested in what happens in the system. So if you have something like that, uh, using a transaction is not a good way of handling things. But if it's something you you can return an error, you can show that something went wrong and you can expect the user to to try again or to correct some information, then sure, using a transaction and using synchronous handlers is probably the easiest and simpler uh, way to go. So I would say that the most important thing for you to think about 
is to consider what the user expects to see. What does it mean for the user to for their action to be successful? And once that is completed, they should get a response, no matter what side effects you're handling after that. Yeah, that's an interesting question, especially what you bring up, like uploading documents and things like that. Because in a system I work on, you know, users uh, are applying for things. So they're applying maybe to rent an apartment or something, or maybe to for a, a job. And so they're providing a lot of documentation. And so like one of the things that could fail is there could be, we, there's a virus scan that's run on any like Word documents or PDFs or anything that are provided. And so like that could fail. And it really does become a question of what's the right thing to do. I like the approach of saying what is most appropriate for what the user expects. You know, it might still fail and maybe it now an administrative person needs to get in contact with them and say, hey, we had a problem. You know, it becomes an asynchronous thing. But, you know, as far as their operation is concerned, I uploaded my stuff and I completed my application. Uh, I like making it user centric. So that's a good point. I like it. It's a great example because it tackles an important issue uh, that some of those decisions are not technical ones. They are business decisions that should be uh, should be considered from the business perspective. Because what does it mean that the the antivirus scan fails? Does it mean that the user should maybe upload a different document? Uh, or does it mean that the service that handles the scanning was down and it's a technical problem? Uh, it can mean different things. So it's a bigger discussion that should be done by the team, by the business people, by the, the domain experts, and not just within the, the technical team. All of this uh, reminds me of a, of a talk that Ben Wilson had given at the Big Elixir back in 2018. Um, it's called uh, Trapped by Our Tools. You should uh, definitely give it a listen if you haven't already. But it, it, it does reaffirm this idea a lot that like it, the, the title of his talk is Trapped by Our Tools. And the tool that he's uh, attacking there is really CRUD, right? And so that CRUD architecture, just create, update, delete, that kind of stuff, is very object-oriented, right? Uh, of what am, what am I doing to these, to these objects? Um, and escaping that, you know, means we're, we're trapped by that architecture where we're still thinking in the past, basically, but moving to, uh, he called it activity-based, you're calling it a, a event-based here, um, really, really helps with uh, decomposing models like this and actually, you know, moving to domain-driven design a lot easier, um, a lot more effectively. And, uh, you know, I brought up user modeling near the beginning of the show and in the interview is because like users are primarily the ones that are, you know, emitting these, these kinds of events, so, like triggering these, these events. And so I, I really love that you talked about like, yeah, the, the, the border of, of, of failure happens, you know, where, where the user should care or not. Right. Yeah. They've uploaded their document. They've done their part. You know, anything, any errors that happen past that point. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that needs to be, um, uh, a notification that goes to somewhere else. Uh, the user doesn't need to pay for that, you know, that, that issue, you know, in the UI themselves. Um, so it's pretty, pretty interesting. I, I, I've really loved, you know, thinking about applications in terms of activities and events 
And with the tools that like Phoenix provides with PubSub and like RabbitMQ with this message passing stuff, they're huge enablers, I think, for, you know, rediscovering a love for programming even. You mentioned uh, a talk when when there's like a really object-oriented model with just update operations. Uh, there's a great article uh, about modeling a horse that uh, we can link to that in the show notes, but uh, he talks about modeling a horse and then a different re- requirements come in. And then we have a different kind of horse in our application, but it's a different kind of horse. And he talks about uh, he talks about a donkey, but in a way that we often talk about <laughs> our models in our systems. Mm-hmm. So it's really eye-opening how how we used to think as the developers and how it's different from how we think yeah. about real worlds as as humans. Let me try to to find that article really quick for you. Donkey code. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, that's good. I like the title. <laughs> horse dot is short and horse is stubborn. That's fun. I like how how he ends up like the the picture is like a a donkey horse zebra <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, but I mean it's it's pretty amazing. I mean it's it's what we often do in code, but a bunch of if statements saying that if that then do this instead of just saying that those things are just not the same and we should model them as different things. I I really enjoy yeah we've I guess we've already talked about this but I really enjoy that you said you know, that it, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to whole hog jump into this foreign architecture, you know, with these other tools that you've never used before, like CRDT, where you can reconstruct all your state based on logs, that kind of stuff. You don't have to go whole hog into that. Um, like you, you can do it simply, you know, within your own architecture, like you said, like just, just having a, a, a dot, a publisher dot broadcast kind of function there. Um, where you can emit those side effects if you need to. Um, but then also that Phoenix, you know, if you're using Phoenix has that pub sub stuff built in. Um, but again, you don't have to like subscribe to the whole, you know, other tool system that you may not be familiar with. So it's a, it's easier than you might think to dip your toes into an event based or activity based kind of architecture. Um, which is really nice. Like I think developers get a, uh, we have a bad rap for, you know, being almost like extremists, right? That, <laughs> that if you have this other idea that you have to be extreme about it. <laughs> um, so you're either a hundred percent functional or you're a hundred percent object oriented or you're, you know, uh, this or that. And, and there's no middle ground, but I, I've, I think that, you know, sane developers, good developers see that, you know, there's a lot of good value in sharing those ideas and in the middle ground. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm I'm really happy that you know Phoenix gives us those those tools out of the box um, to to start uh, discovering those other ideas. Yeah, I think you mentioned an important uh, aspect that I would like to encourage everyone to just stop looking for a correct answer for your problems because there there, there is no correct answer. Uh, what works is if you try different things try to 
makes small experiments, try to learn from them, and then see what works for you, for your specific problem. And just take what works from different paradigms, from different ecosystems, from different technologies. If you want to try RabbitMQ, sure, go ahead. If you want to try event-driven approach without any message queues, go ahead. The the whole system doesn't need to be consistent. You don't need to use some global architecture for every problem. You can try different stuff and you can try to see what works for you. Great tips. So one thing I just want to mention to you, dear listener, is I'd encourage you to check out his blog post uh, because Mache has this blog post that includes code, which, you know, does not translate into audio. And so you can kind of see some of the examples in Elixir code and schemas and kind of make it a little bit more concrete for you. Uh, So check that out, link to that in the show notes. So Mache, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we have to close? I would definitely encourage everyone to read about the Benjamin design a bit. It's a valuable uh, knowledge for everyone. I would like to once again encourage everyone to try different things, to understand that each problem is different. Each problem is suitable for different solutions. So what works for some other guys won't work for me for you. So just find something that works for you. Don't expect to for it to be perfect and expect constant learning. Yes, that's absolutely true. Expect constant learning. <laughs> I like that. And try to understand the domain you're working in. It's really important to understand the business problem, understand how users use your, your system, understand what happens when your system is down and things like that. It really helps you to to focus and to write code that is useful and not annoying. And one thing I'd just like to add to that is the idea of domain-driven design. Like it is a specific practice. There are books that say this is how it is done and you use nouns here and verbs here. Uh, you don't have to go to that extent, right? Uh, I think there's value in just kind of understanding how people approach the problem. There's some good talks online where you can just see how people talk about it. That can help give you some thoughts. It doesn't have to be like, oh, now I'm going to, you know, break it down this way in this because I'm in this phase of this process. You know, it doesn't have to be so structured. For myself, I found a lot of value in learning about domain-driven design, but I don't apply it, you know, uh, explicitly. Uh, Just kind of like what you were saying, you know, a Take these different ideas and adapt them for your situation and for how you want to work. So I think that's great. Well, Michay, if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I would say the best way is on Twitter. I'm at mkashabowski94. You can find the, the link on Twitter on the show notes. You can just write a message. You can tweet at me and we can talk. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to share your insights and experience. And that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.